on the virtual Bible study tonight, we're going to do something we've never done before in all the years of the virtual Bible study. We're going to do a lightning round. We've got 30 some odd questions we're going to try to answer in our hour long study. Uh, they have to do with what some religious groups would refer to as the sacraments. What about the sacraments? That'll be our study tonight on the, on the virtual Bible study. We encourage you to stay tuned and join in as we go through a rapid fire discussion of some important Bible topics. Stay tuned. It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931 931- one three eight one four five six seven or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com we hope you'll take out your bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of god's word on this edition of the virtual bible study and this is the virtual bible study for thursday december the first 2022 my name is greg Gwynn. joining me tonight on the virtual bible study is josh mccord josh thanks for for being here to Good to be here to do this yeah. lightning round of questions and studies behind the board as always Kyle Barnes Kyle thanks for helping us yeah, tonight it's good to be here all right so uh, a good friend of mine Randy in Colorado sent in some questions about what a lot of religious people would refer to as the sacraments Randy and I go way back we were in college together over 50 years ago. And, uh, in fact, recently, the last program that you and Jacob did, Josh, on the miracles of the Holy Spirit, uh-huh. Randy emailed me and said, I remember you and I talking about this in college in the library. I remember the table we were sitting at. <laughs> I had to tell him that his memory was a whole lot better than mine. But Randy and I go way back. And, and he has sent in some interesting questions. I don't think they, I, I don't think we should, read anything into the questions as to what Randy believes one way or the other. He just he just posed some questions that he thought were really interesting, and I think they are too. There's over 30 questions here, Josh. We're gonna, we got less than two minutes per question. we got to go fast. So if I get wordy, you cut me off. If okay. you get wordy, I'll cut you off. <laughs> okay. But the first question is interesting. What are the sacraments in the New Testament, and is it okay to call them sacraments? Well, by definition, the the sacraments are Rites and rituals performed in and by the church to convey God's grace to believers. Well, based on that definition, we're against rites and rituals. You know, the idea of a ritual sort of uh, is the opposite of heartfelt service, you know, uh, uh, real sincere, involved worship. So we wouldn't want it to be a, a, a ritual. We do do things to stay in God's grace. Galatians 5 verse 4 says you can fall from grace. We want to stay in God's grace. And so we do things in order to try and stay in God's grace, including faithful worship and the acts of worship and obeying the steps and the commands to be saved. Uh, But nowhere in the New Testament are any of those things. And he's going to go on to ask some questions about the Lord's Supper and baptism, the two sacraments of, of mainline religious denominations they're never called sacraments in the new testament well we want to do things in bible ways and call bible things or bible names and that terminology just isn't used so yeah we wouldn't is it okay we wouldn't use that terminology yeah it's not uh uh, the catholic church and the orthodox church have seven sacraments baptism confirmation eucharist penance or reconciliation anointing of the sick marriage and holy orders The, the catholics have seven sacraments uh but most of the mainline denominations that still refer to them as sacraments just have two, and the two that they observe are the Lord's Supper or communion and baptism. And so those are the two that Randy goes on to focus his questions about, and those are the two that we're going to deal with. Uh, Kent in uh, Calhoun, Georgia says, the concept of sacraments deals with a religious act used as a means of conferring grace. This is not a scriptural term. Such is not used in the New Testament. Christ is the means of conferring salvation. While they are conditions required to be obeyed to receive salvation, the New Testament never refers to such as being sacraments. It's not a Bible word. You know, we're very, we're very much about calling Bible things by Bible names, yeah. and that's just not a Bible term. Right. And if there's no other reason to stay away from it, I'd stay away from that yeah, reason. That's good enough reason for me. Yeah. All right. Is it okay to call it communion? Now, all these next questions are going to be about the Lord's Supper. 
Is it okay? Because, again, I, I want to emphasize this connection to the idea of sacraments. The mainline religious denominations in our world today have uh, observed two sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And so those, those are the two we're going to focus on in the rest of our study. Now, concern, the, these next many questions will be about the Lord's Supper. Is it okay to call it communion or Eucharist? What do you say, Josh? Well, Eucharist is a Roman Catholic term. It's not in the Bible. Well, communion is uh, in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16. As you look through there, there it talks so about communion. So that's a Bible term. It's a Bible term, and so that's what we're doing. We're, yeah. we're uh, Together, we're, and, and a bunch of these verses are going to, just just roll right off each other but at the lord's supper remembering christ's death uh it's communion lord's supper would be appropriate there's there's a couple terms that we can but eucharist it. eucharist is a, a a term from the greek that literally means thanksgiving yeah. well when we observe the lord's supper it's not of course we're thankful right but it is actually an act of remembrance yeah. rather than an act of thanksgiving right. i mean certainly we're thankful as we partake right. of the lord's supper but that's but the emphasis of the lord's supper is on remembrance that's what jesus said do this in remembrance of me yeah. so again we wouldn't use the term eucharist it's not biblical call bible things by bible words is the type of bread important leavened unleavened one piece individual pieces well yeah absolutely uh, so the lord's supper was instituted during passover uh, and if you look back in Exodus 12 and verse 8, it talks about unleavened bread. There's significance of that. Uh, you get to the New Testament, that's what was going on. It was the feast of Passover, uh, the Passover feast, and Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Leaven throughout the New Testament represents sin so many times. And so the unleavened bread would represent Jesus' sinless body. Uh, and so there, there's really a lot of symbolic meaning there, but it, it's got a purpose. We know that Jesus would have used unleavened bread when he instituted the Lord's right. Supper because it was Passover That's week. Right. We're going to do what Jesus did. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. Uh, there wouldn't be any reason to do otherwise. To do otherwise would be taking liberties with what we know. We, we're we not right. guessing. We know that Jesus used unleavened bread. Right. Uh, uh, Kent and Georgia says unleavened bread is the type of bread that must be used in the Lord's Supper. The size and pieces are not specified. I, you know, some people think you got you got to start with one piece and then yeah. break it into smaller pieces. As you, but I think that that would probably be the argument, the same argument with the the one cup that we've talked about before. There's no way the original Jerusalem congregation could have all participated right. in one cup or one piece of bread. Yeah. And and I don't think there's any reason to think that the bread has to be in one piece when it starts, when the Lord's Supper starts. Uh, Oh, I skipped Kent's answer on the Eucharist. I'm going to have to skip that. We've got to keep moving forward. Number three, uh, can we use wine, grape juice, or some other liquid? Well, we certainly can't use another liquid because Jesus says it's through the vine. You know, it's interesting that when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, and every time it's referred to in the New Testament, it's never referred to as wine. It's never called wine. It's It's always called the cup. Or the fruit of the vine is never called wine. We believe that Jesus never used intoxicating wine in his lifetime. There wouldn't be any reason to. I mean, I, I think we can strongly argue that that uh, Jesus would not have used intoxicating wine. Why would he be incorporated in the Lord's Supper? You can make the same argument about leaven, and some people do. I don't know whether it's a fair argument or not. But you know, in order for grape juice to ferment into wine, there has to be mm-hmm. a leavening agent, yeast. Yeah. And there's yeast in the air that will cause that, that can cause fermentation. It, it wouldn't necessarily cause fermentation, but to purposefully cause wine to ferment, you introduce a leavening agent. And some argue, and it may be a fair argument. I'm not real confident in it, uh, but some argue that Jesus yeah. would, and a faithful Jew would not have used wine because it had had leavening introduced to it. Yeah. So uh, we're saying grape juice. We're saying fruit of the vine. Next question, should we use one cup as Jesus did? For those who want a deeper study of this, if you go to our College View live stream channel, we recently had a, uh, we had a program on that, Kyle, and it's, it's on our live stream archives, College View live stream yeah. channel. Yeah, it's uh, one cup. That's, uh, it was, it's, a really, yeah, it's a good lesson. Okay. It's on there. The one cup, that, that is the idea of metonymy. The cup is used to, as a reference to what it contained. Uh, look up the figure of speech metonymy. That's what every time that the fruit of the vine or the drink part of the Lord's Supper is referenced uh, by by calling it the cup, 
It's talking about what was in the cup. They didn't drink the cup. They drank what was in the cup. Right. Uh, now, Randy makes an interesting statement. Should we use one cup as Jesus did? I'm not actually totally c- convinced that Jesus did that. That Jesus and the apostles used one cup. In Luke 22, verse 17, Luke 22, uh, uh, verse 17, he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. What did they divide? They, they, they didn't divide the cup. They divided the contents among themselves. And then in verse 20, likewise, after the cup, uh, the cup after supper, this is the, the, the cup of, is the New Testament of my blood, which is shed for you. So, uh, I, there's there's historical indication that at a Passover feast, every participant would have had their own cup. And when Jesus said, take this and divide it among yourselves, likely they poured it each into their own individual cup. Luke 22, I think, strongly argues that even in the uh, initial institution of the Lord's Supper, more than one cup was used. Uh, concerning these last two questions, Kent says, fruit of the vine is specified to be used in the Lord's Supper, such a an expression is distinct from the term wine. The container is not specified insofar as the type or number. The one cup specified speaks with reference to the contents, not the container. There's good historical evidence that in an institution of the Lord's Supper, Christ, uh, Christ and the apostles would have had more than one drinking container. I think he's right on that. Any other thoughts? Uh, uh, well, Josh? no, just that the focus is on the contents, not the container. Yeah. And we're really, and just like we were talking about the unleavened bread, I mean, if we start talking about one piece and individual pieces, we're, we're missing focus of what the what it should be on. It's yeah. unleavened bread, and it's the fruit of the vine, rep- yeah. what yeah. it represents. Yeah. Uh, men have, have, have always been inclined to innovate, to change, to add, yeah. uh, and, and so they've wanted to change that. To even some some of these far out contemporary worships, you know, they're not even using fruit, uh, not even using fruit of the vine. You know, maybe using Coke and pizza for the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Well, if you can do that, you can do anything you want. I mean, yeah. if you're just going to ignore the Bible and what yeah. it teaches, then you'll just go anywhere you well, want. Totally but if you're going to do if you're going to anyway. do Bible things in Bible ways, you're going to you're going to observe the Lord's Supper in the very way that Jesus instituted, with unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. Yeah. I mean, that's just what you're going to do. Here's a quick question. Is indinction okay? And then, thankfully, Randy uh, tra- uh, defined indinction for us because I didn't know that term. That's dipping the bread in the, the wine or the juice. Is that okay? Uh, I'm just going to say there's no Bible for it. It's just not biblical. They, yeah, I mean, I mean, <laughs> that's not how they did it. There's no indication. Now, apparently... Since it actually has its own terminology, apparently some religious groups do do that. Yeah. I just don't know where you go for the authority. There's, there's yeah. no indication that that was ever done. Uh, Kent says there's no authority for the concept of dipping the bread in the wine or juice. The divine record refers to partaking both elements as two distinct acts. I think that's right. It, uh, Jesus gave them the bread, said, this is my body. Then he gave them the fruit of the vine and said, drink ye uh, all of it. Right. And so I, I think they were two distinct acts. Okay, uh, how are we doing on time? We got. Well, let's grab one more quick question. Uh, is it okay for the server to say this is the body of Christ and this is the blood of Christ? And I'm sure Randy's question there, and we hear this argument sometimes. Is it okay to say this is his body, this is his blood? Is it okay to say this represents his body, this represents? You know, typically I hear people complaining if we say this represents his body and blood because Jesus said, this is my body and my blood. But I think that language is, you know, uh, if uh, if I had a wreck, uh, Josh, and I said, this is my car and this is the car of the guy that hit me and he came right in there and T-boned me. <laughs> well, this is not my car. Right. But when I said, okay, okay, Josh, this is my car. This is the car of the guy who hit me. You know I'm talking right. representatively. Yeah. And and so uh, I don't think that that's the thing we have to quibble yeah. about. Well, as long as we understand, you know, there's this idea of transubstantiation. Uh, trans, how do you say it? Transubstantiation. Yeah. Yeah. The Catholics teach that the bread literally becomes right. the body of Christ yeah. and that the fruit of the vine literally becomes yeah. his blood. And it, it, we don't believe yeah, that. As long as we've got that understanding and we know when we yeah. say this is, you know, this is body, yeah. this is, but yeah, we're not, um, we're not misunderstanding what it's talking here. about. 
uh, Kent says, the elements used in the Lord's Supper do not constitute the body and blood of Christ. They constitute our fellowship with the body and blood. So I, I, I don't have a problem with it either way because Jesus said, this is my right. body. This is my blood. Yeah. So if if we were to say, as we partake the bread, this is the body of Christ. If we were to say this is uh, with the Lord, uh, the fruit of the vine, this is his blood. I'm okay with that. But I think we all need to understand that these are being used to mm-hmm. represent the things that accomplished our salvation, the body and blood of Jesus. Okay. We're going to grab a break. I, I think we're, I think we're doing pretty good on time, Josh. We've got to keep it up. We're going to keep on with our lightning round about the so-called sacraments. Stay with us. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you checked out all of the resources on collegeview.com lately? Check it out now while you listen to these important messages. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. Here's a quick thought. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15. In a world full of evil, God calls us not to repay evil for evil. Instead, he says we should always seek to do good. Jesus lived this way every day of his existence. And so should we. Seize the day. Here's some quotes worth pondering. It's been observed that many people use mighty thin thread when mending their ways. Life is tragic for the person who has plenty to live on, but nothing to live for. Man, wish I'd said that. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. The virtual Bible study continues. We're back on the virtual Bible study. We're doing a lightning round talking about the so-called sacraments of many mainline religious groups. Specifically, we're talking about the Lord's Supper and baptism. That's what we call them. We don't call them sacraments, Josh. We call them the Lord's Supper and the baptism. And and uh, so we're dealing with some interesting questions about them that some of them that we've never, ever talked about before. We keep talking. All these that continue talk about the Lord's Supper. Is it okay for the server to put the bread in the person's mouth? Well, there's no example of that. Uh, I mean, is it okay? (laughs) But that's just not what we see happen. I mean, Jesus took the bread and, you know, he blessed it and break it. And, you know, you get the idea that it was passed out and then they they took it. So there's no indication that they ever did anything like that. Again, why why invent something? Why do something different than a biblical the biblical examples that we read about? Uh, Kent says, why engage in doing such? Is is this being done as a, a religious act within itself? Such appears to be a relic of Roman Catholicism. You know, the Catholic Church does do that. Right. And I was wondering if that doesn't add to the notion of a clergy-laity distinction. I think so. I'm, I'm, I'm higher than you right. because I'm, I'm a special person. I'm a priest in the mm-hmm. church, mm-hmm. and I'm going to... I'm gonna, and because I'm higher than you, I'm going to put this on your tongue because yeah. you're subservient to me. As right. the, in observing the Lord's Supper, we're all on an equal plane. You know, there, there, there's no such distinction of class among Christians. Right. So I would argue that it probably is comes out of Catholicism and and is is representative of an erroneous kind of thinking. Yeah, I think so. Okay, you watch in the chat room. I am. Yeah, so there's several questions coming through. We're uh, getting some additional questions. We got too many questions already. So <laughs> you guys chatted up in the chat room. We may not. We probably won't be able to get to any additional questions in the chat room. Uh, next, uh, is it important who serves the elements? Uh, so typically in a worship service, there'll be some men appointed. After the after some introductory comments about the the, the act of worship, the acts of worship that we're engaging, then there'll be prayer. The pray for the bread and the bread. These men will pass out the bread. Then another prayer for the fruit of vine. These men will pass out. Is it imp- the question is is it important who serves the elements? Well, yes and no. Uh, no, I don't think there's any particular. You know, I, I don't think that the man who serves is is any more special than anybody else. But on the other hand, I would say yes. We're not going to we're not going to take a guy off the street and right. bring him in to pass. Why would we do that? Yeah. Or or here's a guy who hasn't been to church services in the last eighteen months. 
and, and he's a Christian, but he's been terribly unfaithful. And he shows up, and we have him pass. Yeah. Now, I wouldn't do that either. Right. So, I, I, basically, my, I think my basic answer is no. It really doesn't matter. But there's some discretion to be used in, yeah, in who so. we choose to do it. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think maybe that leads to that last comment about putting, you know, putting the bread in a person's mouth. You know, maybe the person serving it, they're important. They're on a higher level. But our focus is about what we're doing, partaking in a worthy manner. That should be our main focus, not necessarily, you know, what, which men are up there serving today. They yeah. must be special this week. Yeah. No, that's not what our focus is. Kent says, we cannot see the heart of those who serve the elements. However, we need to do our best to only use faithful Christian men in leading our worship assemblies. And I think that's the point. Mm-hmm. They're taking a leading role. And, and and for that reason, we we would want them to, to the best of our knowledge, to be living faithful lives. We're not going to, you know, put some rank center up there to, to lead yeah. in worship. Good point. Next, should we all take the elements at one time, or is it okay to take at will? Uh, so I think the question here, if I understand the question, so we've got an assembly of a hundred or a couple hundred people. And so as as the elements of the Lord's Supper are being passed out, the people, there are going to be some people who are going to get it, and they're going to get it a, a, maybe a minute or two before the people, maybe the front people get it first and the people in the back get it last, and there may be a time difference between them. Should the people in front hold and yeah. wait for the people in the back to get theirs, and then we all gobble down the bread <laughs> at the same time, and we all sip the, the fruit of the vine at the same time? Uh, I don't think there's any reason for that because though we do it in 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 the the assembly of saints, we're going to talk about that in a minute. It's still an act that we do. It's our remembrance yeah. of Jesus, you know. And so, you're not remembering Jesus for me, and I'm not remembering Jesus for you. And so, in that sense, I'm, I'm independently acting in regards to my involvement right. in this. In this procedure. Oh, and we're still taking it together. I mean, if, just because you get done eating the bread before I get done eating the bread, I mean, we're still taking that in the same time frame together. And and if there, if this was essential, think about the the logistical nightmare. You know, <laughs> oh, now we messed up because there's one guy in the back, yeah. and he was he was he was disciplining a, an unruly child. And we all took the bread, and, and he was he was ten seconds later than we were taking right. the bread. Now we're going to ah, now it's all messed up. Yeah, it's a, it would be a logistical nightmare, and I think God in wisdom wouldn't require yeah. that kind of careful right. coordination. Well, and I think when Jesus passed, they were having a common meal, and then Jesus did you know pray at the same time and pass it out at the same time. But just just by common sense, you know that somebody had to get it last, so probably the people, guy at the end of the table yeah, got I mean, it last. He's not going to be eaten as yeah, soon as yeah, the, I mean, you yeah. know. I, it just that's just not uh, there. That's just adding adding more than, than what we have recorded for us. Uh, Kent says, while we are not required to partake collectively at the same moment, we need to take them in the same assembly while we are assembled. There is no New Testament authority for providing a carryout service for the Lord's Supper for Christians to take the elements home with them and partake of at a late later during the day individually. I didn't know anybody was doing that, but <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised with all this COVID business that that sort of thing yeah. probably has taken place next question is it okay to take it monthly or quarterly no acts 20 verse 7 first day of the week and we've talked plenty of times about the language of acts 20 verse 7 implies it was something they did every first day of the week. but it only says the uh it uh well, well he's going to ask about other days here in a minute but uh, kent says no new testament authority to partake lord's supper monthly or quarterly such must be observed on the first day of every week acts 20 verse 7 Next question is okay to take it outside the church building. Well, outside the you know, I, I, there's nothing special about the church building. Right. You know, in the early days of COVID, when nobody knew what was up, we were among those who met in our parking lot, uh, but we were still together. But we were yeah. in the parking lot. We weren't inside the building, and we observed the Lord's Supper. I don't think there's any problem with that. Because we were still together in an assembled place, right. uh, but no, I don't think the building's significant. But I think in the assembly is. Kent says the physical location of the first day of the week assembly is irre- irrelevant. The local church in the first day of the week assembly is to partake the Lord's Supper in the assembly when the church come together. If a tornado destroyed the building when the church came on, uh, where the church met 
on Saturday night, that local church could still partake of the Lord's Supper elsewhere on the next day. And I think that's a good example. Yeah. Probably exactly right. Uh, but but again, it is to be done in the assembly. We've had, again, Kyle, in, in our virtual Bible study archives, if you go back to probably early 2021, let's see, was that what? It was yeah. probably 2020. Right, right when things oh, right. Yeah, in yeah. early 2020, because COVID started in yeah. late 19, uh, 2019. Mm-hmm. So in early 2020, we had set, go back in our archives if you're interested in that, because we had several programs where we talked about different yeah. things, including the partaking the oh, Lord's yeah. Supper. Mm-hmm. And there were, there were those who were arguing you could do it at home, maybe right. watching a live stream at home. And we said, no, it has yeah. to be done in the assembly. Uh, First uh, uh, Corinthians eleven twenty uh, talks about them coming together, the whole church come together to take right. the Lord's Supper. That's what we got to do. Uh, number twelve, can, can we take it uh, as a family or a Bible study group in a home? No, it has to be the yeah. whole church come together. Yeah, that was good. You answered two and one there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> hey, hey, we're making time. We're flying now. Uh, next question. Uh, is taking it on Sunday, the first day of the week, important, or can we do it other days? Yes, it is important. And no, so, we can't take it no, other days. <laughs> our verse is Acts 20, verse 7. Right. right? It's got to be on the first day of the week. It has to be on the first day of every week. There's no authority. So someone said, well, I, just, I think it's okay to do Friday. If it's okay to take the Lord's Supper on Friday, then it's okay to do any other thing that you just choose to do. Because you'll be doing something without biblical authority. Yeah. And you take that first step outside of biblical authority, then you have opened the door for everything. Yeah. And yeah. you can't argue against anything. That's right. That's right. Uh, next question. We are to examine ourselves before taking. What does that mean? Uh, well, that that's, that is from 1 Corinthians 11. Let's look real quickly at that. We, we, again, we're having to do lightning round speed here. Uh, but in 1 Corinthians 11, that's where that expression is uh, found. Uh, Paul is, is referring to what Jesus instructed about the Lord's Supper. Uh, he says in verse 26, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-six: For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the blood and uh, of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. To partake unworthily is to partake not discerning the Lord's body. You know, sometimes you hear people try to make application of that. Well, I don't think I was very good this week. I, I did some stuff I shouldn't have done this week. I just don't feel worthy to take the Lord's Supper. That's not the word. Right. It's not whether you're worthy. It's it's the manner of partaking. Worthily uh, is an adverb telling how you partake. You partake worthily, and 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 the the worthy participation is remembering jesus discerning right. the body and blood of jesus and right. if you don't it is important what you're doing but it's and, and that's the examination that you've got to make thoughts no no come okay uh, uh kent says such means that we need to compare our attitudes and lives with the standard of the new testament I really think, though, specifically the worthy participation. Oh, he says eating the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, uh, uh, eating such in an improper way. Uh, oh, oh, wait a minute. We're get, we're get, I'm getting ahead of myself. First, what does First Corinthians 11:29 mean when it says uh, uh, to participate unworthily, uh, to participate without remembering Jesus, yeah. to not be thinking about what you're yeah. doing while you're doing it? And if and if that's the case, then you're putting yourself in spiritual danger. Yeah. All right. Can a child be old enough for baptism, but not old enough to take the Lord's Supper? Well, I just put down there, if you can understand one, then you can understand both. I mean, you know, if you're in an age where you understand what it means to be baptized for the remission of your sins, you can have faith and repent. Then you're in an age where you can understand what the Lord's Supper's significance is. And if you can't, then I'd argue you're not old enough to... Uh, you know, become a Christian if you can't understand that. I think that's a really good answer. I mean, uh, I really like what, the way you said it. If you can understand one, you can understand the other. But you have to do both with understanding. Right. right. Good point. Good point. Uh, we're going to get done. We're up to time for a break. We're, we've got a couple more questions. 
and we're going to get done with this Lord's Supper part. Okay. Uh, can women serve the Lord's Supper? Maybe. Maybe if we got an assembly of all women, then yeah. they certainly would serve the Lord's yeah. Supper, you know. Yeah. Uh, Kent says, not unless the entire worship assembly is comprised of women. Women serving the Lord's Supper is uh, to an assembly of both men and women would violate First Timothy 2, 11 and 12. Women should not, or uh, women would be in that case exercising authority over men. I think that's the general take on that. Uh, you know, again, why would we do that? Why, why? But a lot of religious groups are trying to push that envelope, yeah. you know, trying, trying to, to, to. But that's just the first step in including yeah. women in other acts of worship, leading all the way to women preachers, which right. are happening even among churches of Christ these days. Uh, and so, again, women are to be in submission to men. Right. And, and, and I don't know that a woman passing out bread would be an act of usurping over the men. But it would certainly set a precedent in that yeah. direction. Yeah. Maybe not, but why would you want to? Yeah. To me, that's like, let's see how close we can get without going too far. And and our approach should be, I don't want to get close to the line at all. Let's do what we know is right and what is okay. And we know that if we if we just have men serve, we know that's right. Yeah. Let's do that. Yeah. Uh, final question about the Lord's Supper, the so-called sacrament of yeah. the Lord's Supper. And all these questions come from our friend Randy in Colorado. Is it okay to dispose of the leftover elements in the trash. Okay, now, so we do this, and we've got it all prepped. Uh, we got the, the unleavened bread, and we've got the fruit of the vine. And, but we don't know, you know, how many people are going to be here Sunday, you know. Uh, and we, we kind of overshot the estimate. We have some bread left over. We have some fruit of the vine left over. So what should we do? Can we pour the fruit of the vine down the drain and throw the rest of the bread in the trash? I'm going to say yes, because to... to the only reason why we wouldn't was if we had that faulty view of the Catholic Church that right. the, the transubstantiation. Right. Uh, it's still bread and, and grape juice. Yeah. You know, and so I, I knew of a congregation, of, a faithful congregation, that they would actually take, they had a shovel in the back of the church building, and they would go out in the backyard and dig a hole and put the, put the leftover elements in the ground. Really? I don't know why. But I remember, I remember as a kid, uh, knowing of a church that did that. Interesting. Uh, it's just totally not necessary. Well, and it's not mentioned. I, you know, in Matthew 26, when Jesus gets through saying, "I'm not going to drink this until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom," and in verse 30, it just transitioned. When they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You know, it, does, it doesn't say anything about clean up and scraps left okay. over. And, and Andrew hadn't finished all of his bread. <laughs> yeah, there's just nothing, <laughs> nothing said about it. So. All right, all right, okay. We made it through that part. We're just we're just a little bit over halfway through the program, and we're halfway through the questions. We're going to keep up with our lightning round about the so-called sacraments. We're going to move to the 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 one the the so-called sacrament that we know to be very important. Because Lord's Supper is really important. We don't call it a sacrament. We call it the Lord's Supper. The next whole set of questions is about baptism. It's really important. We don't call it a sacrament, but we really believe that baptism is important. We got a bunch of questions about baptism. And we're going to take those on right after we come back from this break. Now you can listen to a podcast of a recent sermon every week. Find out more at collegeview.com. There's more of the virtual Bible study right after these important messages. My name is Rick Harris, and I love to listen to the virtual Bible study. I hope you'll join me and many others in this weekly Internet Bible study group. Be sure to listen every Thursday night. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. People generally have the idea that a meek individual is one that is extremely quiet, withdrawn, timid, one who finds it very difficult to be confrontational or straightforward. It is thought that it would be hard for a meek person to hold or defend a strong opinion or conviction. Even modern dictionaries define this characteristic as, quote, unduly patient or submissive, spiritless. Such definitions surely miss the mark. Jesus was described as meek, Matthew chapter 21, verse 5, yet he never hesitated to express the truth. His strong rebukes of the hypocritical Pharisees certainly show him as both courageous and confrontational. Moses was said to have been, quote, very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth, Numbers 12, verse 3. But we well remember how he boldly demanded the freedom of the Israelites from Pharaoh and ultimately led the people out of bondage. Do you begin to see that the biblical usage of the word meek is far different than the modern concept? W.E. Vine says, quote, The meaning of protes, 
the Greek word, is not readily expressed in English. For the terms meekness and mildness commonly used suggest weakness to a greater or lesser extent, whereas the Greek word is nothing of the kind. The common assumption is that when a man is meek, it is because he cannot help himself. But the Lord was meek because he had the infinite resources of God at his command. Described negatively, meekness is the opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. It is that spirit that is neither elated nor cast down simply because it is not occupied with self at all. That's from the Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words. Meekness, therefore, is one of the fruits of the Spirit, as we read in Galatians chapter 5, beginning verse 22, and we need it. Let's be sure that we are, quote, showing all meekness to all men, Titus 3, verse 2. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Colossians three seventeen. Now, back to the program. And this is the Virtual Bible Study. I want to remind you that the Virtual Bible Study is brought to you t- this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more about us by going to our website, collegeview.com. C-O-L-L-E-G-E-V-U-E, collegeview.com. There's a lot of teaching resources on there. You can find out about our location, our times of services. Uh, uh, we've got sermons. We, we've got Bible classes. We've got a lot of video archives. Kyle keeps those all updated for us. A lot of good teaching material there. And you can also find out more about us at the church meeting in Columbia, Tennessee, College View Church of Christ. All right, we're dealing with what a lot of religious denominations call the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. We're moving on to the questions submitted concerning the so-called sacrament of baptism. Uh, and I think they're really important questions. Uh, quite the first one, we've got to go fast. We've got a lot to go. We've got to go fast. Is the mode important? Is it uh, that meaning, is it immersion, sprinkling, or pouring? What do you think, Josh? Sure. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> we could just, okay, yes. Go to the next question. Yeah, I mean, so, so in the New Testament, baptism is immersion. Uh, it wasn't, there's never a case where sprinkling or pouring or any of those other things took place. They were buried. Colossians 2.12, I believe, says buried with him in baptism. Romans 6.4 says yeah, that. Yeah, it's a burial. That's what the purpose yeah. is. You're buried and, with Christ. Exactly right. And, and it is actually the meaning of the word baptize. Right. And we've talked about this before lots of times on the virtual Bible study. But the Greek word is baptizo. Uh, they anglicized that word. That is, they just invented a new English word and didn't even right. translate it. just brought it over from Greek to English. But the Greek word baptizo means to dip or plunge or submerge. It does not mean to sprinkle or pour. Right. So based on the meaning of the word, based upon the New Testament examples we have, when when Philip baptized the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, they both went down into the water and he baptized them and they came up out of the yeah. water. There's, uh, we have example. We know the meaning of the word. We hear it referred to uh, specifically as a burial. So the answer to that is yes. The action, Kent says the action of New Testament baptism is immersion exclusively. And I think that's exactly right. Is the person performing the baptism critical? Do they have to be saved? This, I think, is a real interesting question. And I think some people might be shocked at the answer I would give. I don't think that who baptizes you is important at all. uh, you know, because if if that person has to be a faithful, saved person, then in order for that to be true, we would have to go back to his baptism and make sure he yeah. was baptized by a faithful, saved person. And then we'd have to keep we'd have to have an unbroken chain all the way back to the first century. And if yeah. at any place one such person was a, an imposter or an unfaithful person. Then that would ruin the, whole thing. the salvation the, of everybody thereafter. Yeah. Uh, that's just ridiculous. Or if, uh, so, my uncle baptized me. If my uncle falls away, I mean, I got to go now. Now I'm in jeopardy because he's falling away, and it's nothing I've done, but it's because of what he did. I mean, we've got individual accountability. And, and so. Kent's on the same wavelength I am. He says, uh, "No, if if so, one would be required to trace one's own baptism in an unbroken chain of succession all the way back to the day of Pentecost in Acts two, yeah. which is, of course, an impossibility." So now, again, I think just uh, precedent wise and preference wise, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to take an, uh, uh, 
a, a, a very immoral person off the street and bring him in to yeah. do the baptizing when there are faithful people available who can right. do it. Right. Uh, so, but again, the, the, the New Testament states yeah. no qualifications on the baptizer. Yeah, so, so, not, so are they critical? Yes, there got to be somebody to baptize you. But you know, it's not. We're focusing on the wrong thing. You know, about them yeah, being saved. Exactly and all right. Exactly right. Next question. Is it okay to do it in a swimming pool, to do the baptizing in a swimming pool? Swimming pool is a lot cleaner in some of the places they yeah. baptized in the New I, Testament. I, I, would, I would argue that a typical swimming pool would be cleaner than the Jordan River. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Uh, you, you remember yeah. Nahum and the leper complained yeah. about this <laughs> nasty really Jordan. we got better yeah. rivers than this in, in, yeah. in, in, in Damascus. Why would I want to get in this nasty thing? And uh, so, you know. Uh, as long as there's sufficient water to do an immersion in, in uh, uh, John three, verse 23, it says, John, John, the baptizer, John was baptizing in, at Enon near to Salem because there was much water there. He had found yeah. a place in the Jordan River where there was a, a, a pool mm-hmm. that has sufficient water to submerge people in. And he was baptizing them there. So uh, certainly a, a, a swimming pool has sufficient water to submerge someone to immerse them and so yeah it'd be fine uh are the words said by the baptizer important and then he goes on to specify in three names or in one name you know so there's a controversy uh, uh, in the great commission jesus said to baptize in the name of the father and son and the holy spirit well some oneness people who believe in jesus only Say we should just baptize in the name of Jesus, that Jesus is Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, So they would argue that if you're not baptized in the name of Jesus only, your baptism is not effectual. In other words, if the guy (laughs) baptizing you doesn't say the right words, your baptism is not effectual. I think that's wrong because, again... It places your salvation upon my ability to remember and say the right yeah. words if I'm baptizing you. Yeah, you must speak and you mess me all up now. Yeah, and I didn't. In fact, the matter I didn't even know it. I was I was kind of focusing on what yeah. was happening, and a mistake and I, was I, made. And I wasn't listening carefully to what you said, and and you made a mistake, and I didn't know about it. Now I'm lost because you didn't say the right words. Right. That's uh, crazy. Uh, uh, Kent says, there is no official formula of words required to be spoken at baptism. I always like to state something as a means of instruction, a reminder of New Testament truth. However, I do not do such as an official act or requirement. I think that's right. Yeah. I don't think there's any formula of words. I don't think there'd have to be any words at all. Yeah. Uh, but so, it has to be understood we're doing it by it, their authority, what the purpose needs, is, and all those things. It needs it, What we're doing needs to be understood. Right. Right. Exactly. We're going to talk about that here in a minute. Um should it be done during a meeting of the church? Uh, I, I I think absolutely not necessary. It's yeah. it's, it's it's an encouragement when it sure. does happen, and lots that's, of people that's a really can good time to do it. It's a good time to do it, but it's not a necessary time to do it. Yeah. I, I I think in my remembrance over the last many years, there have been more instances of baptism not during church services than during church services. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't really matter. I mean, if if you think about uh, the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, he and his household were baptized sometime after midnight yeah. because the earthquake that freed the prisoners from jail happened at midnight. And so sometime after midnight in the wee small hours of the morning, the Philippian jailer and, and his family and household were baptized uh, it wasn't in an assembly of the church. Right. Uh, and so I, I, I'd say no. Uh, Kent says the book of Acts demonstrates time is irrelevant. I think that's right. Uh, does a person need to understand baptism in order to be baptized? I think that's a great question. Really, that's really an important question. What do you think, Josh? Yeah, I mean, I so so. You know, there's a lot of things, there are a lot of prerequisites to baptism. I think we've got to have an understanding of all of them. You have to have faith, and that comes by hearing the Word of God, believing it. And you've got to be willing to repent of your sins, confess your faith. You know, we, we recite the plan of salvation. But I, I think if you don't understand what repentance is, you're not going to be pleasing to God. Without faith, you're not going to be pleasing to God. And certainly, if you don't know what is going on, if you don't understand baptism, you're not going to please God by being dunked in water. That's all you're doing if you don't understand what the purpose is. That's right. In Romans 6... The first verses of the chapter talk about baptism. We're baptized, as, uh, verse 3, 
So many of us, as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. And then in that same context, in Romans 6 at verse 17, Paul says, God, be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. So he mentions them obeying from the heart a form of doctrine. That form of doctrine included baptism, which he mentioned in the same context. And, and so their obedience was from the heart. You can't obey from the heart what you don't understand. And so absolutely, yes, it is totally necessary to understand. That's one of the reasons why we believe that infant baptism is wrong. Mm-hmm. Infants can't understand. Yeah, they don't have a clue. Even if we don't think they need to be baptized because right. they are they are innocent. But even if they did need to be baptized, they couldn't do it because they couldn't understand it. Kent says Romans six seventeen and eighteen, which we just read, establishes this point. One cannot obey what one does not know. Exactly right. Uh, how are we doing on time? Let's take oh, let's take one more. Is rebaptism okay? Should a person baptized as an infant be rebaptized? Should a person sprinkled as an adult be rebaptized? I'm going to say yes, yes, yeah. and yes. Uh, if if you were baptized as an infant, you you haven't really been baptized. Period. You got water sprinkled on you as a baby. You haven't been baptized for the for the remission of sins. So yes, you need to be baptized. A person sprinkled, even as an adult, hasn't hasn't been baptized in the biblical manner. Right. He needs to be baptized in the way that the New Testament specifies. And if everything else was right leading up to it, but then he was sprinkled, he still hasn't been baptized yet. He needs to be immersed. Yeah. Uh, and so rebaptism, well, in, in some instances, what hap- has happened isn't even really baptism. Yeah. But you know, I think that the, I think the greater question we deal with more often is so. So here later in life, someone says, you know, I, I was really young when I when I was baptized and thinking back on it, I'm not sure I really realized all that was involved. I'm not sure that it was truly from the heart. Maybe I was doing it because a bunch of other kids in the church were doing mm-hmm. it and I was just kind of f- submitting to their peer pressure. Should I be baptized? Yeah, you should be baptized because yeah. and, and if you have any doubt at all, take the doubt away. Be baptized. Yeah, it doesn't matter how many times you've done it. If you've done it wrong, it matters yeah. if, you, if you've yeah. done it right. Yeah. Uh, Kent says, if one has not believed the Bible, repented of sins, confessed Christ, one is not qualified to be baptized. Also, if one does not understand that one is being baptized into the universal extension of the one true New Testament church, one has not been properly taught. One cannot be taught wrong and baptized right. That's a that familiar old expression yeah. that as a kid, I remember preachers always saying that you can't be taught wrong and baptized right. I think that's a good thing to remember. We're going to grab our last break. and We're going to fly to the top of the hour. Stay with us on the virtual Bible study. After these important messages, we'll be back to take your comments. Email them during this break. Hello, I'm Nick Law from Jennings, Florida. I love to listen to the virtual Bible study and hear God's word taught every Thursday night. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. A recent survey found that only 1% of church members who earn over $75,000 a year contribute at least 10% of their income. That information is via nonprofitssource.com. The Word of God says in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Missed a recent virtual Bible study program? Listen to any of our past programs from the archive section of our website. Now, back to the virtual Bible study. And we're continuing to discuss the so-called sacraments. Uh, they're not, that's not a Bible terminology. That's denominational terminology. We're, but we're talking about a couple of important acts, the Lord's Supper and baptism. We're flying to the top of the hour. This is, uh, this is, uh, we're covering more questions tonight, Josh, than we've ever covered before on any episode of the Virtual Bible Study. Over 30 questions uh, about the Lord's Supper and baptism. Next one, is baptism required for membership in the local church? How are you going to answer that? Well, in Acts 2, there was a lot of people being saved. Uh, and verse 47 is the verse, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So it's not like, so, you, just, you know, and we're not reading into what the question meant. But I think there's this misconception that, well, you got to be baptized, then maybe you get voted in or whatever. The Lord adds to the church. When you obey the gospel and you're baptized, you're added to the church. So you can't be added to the church without being baptized. So, so But there's really two concepts here. Right. The, the, the concept you mentioned in Acts 2, the, the Lord added to the church daily, such yeah. as should be saved. That, they, he was adding them to the right. universal church. Right. Uh, the, the, the one body of saved believers that exist worldwide. 
But in Acts chapter 9 at verse 26, when the apostle, when, when Saul of Tarsus returned to Jerusalem after having been converted, it says in Acts 9, 26, he attempted or uh, the King James says he essayed or made effort to join himself to the saints in Jerusalem. And so there is a sense in which you mm-hmm. take the initiative to join yourself to a local body of believers. The Lord adds you to the universal church when you are when you are obedient to the gospel plan of salvation. So it's kind of, a, but the question was stated, is baptism required for membership in a local church? I hope we got that distinction in a way, but here's something else. Though. So a guy comes to us here in Columbia, Tennessee, and he wants to be a member of this local congregation. Yeah. And we say, well, are you a Christian? Well, what do you mean? Well, have you obeyed the gospel plan of salvation? What is it? Uh, hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized for their mission. I've never been baptized. We're going to say, well, you can't be a member right. of this local congregation. Yeah, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. So it kind of, it's kind of weird. But in that yeah. sense, yeah, it would be yeah. necessary. But we're not saying you've got to be baptized in this church right. in order to be a member of this church. But we can't, we can't extend that fellowship with yeah. them if they're not a part of the body. Yeah. Uh, uh, Kent says one identifies as a member of the local New Testament church after one is baptized into the universal extension of the Lord's church. In that sense, the the word one must have already been a member of the uh, the universal body of saved people in order to identify with the faithful local church. Baptism puts no one into a local New Testament church. All right. Uh, should a local church require baptism in their church membership? If a previous baptism was done correctly in another church, I think we just covered that. Uh, in other words, if if you come to us from outer Timbuktu, and but you were a faithful member of that church, you had been baptized and you were a faithful acting member of that church, yeah. you come here, you don't have to be baptized here to be a member of this church, right? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I think we pretty much answered that. Uh Kent says, we don't have a church. It's not our own church. It's the Lord. Baptism does not put one into a local church. It places one into the universal church. If one had to be rebaptized, who had already been scripturally baptized whenever he or she moved or relocated. Uh, he says, the way some preachers move around, they would end up being waterlogged. <laughs> if by the term church you mean a denomination, one cannot be baptized into a denomination and receive scriptural baptism. They need to be taught the gospel, believe the truth of God, be scripturally baptized. All right, we're going to run out of time rapidly here. What is household baptism, and is it okay, Josh? Yeah, well, you know, so that term, I had to I had to think on that a little bit because we don't use that term a whole lot. But uh, we talked about before the program, there is a couple times in the book of Acts, in Acts 16, where that terminology is used. Yeah. Uh, in Acts 16, verse 15, uh, it says, when she, this is the case of Lydia. When she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. Um, and so the terminology, I, th- I think, if we understand it yeah. right, is household baptism would be just everybody in your house, uh, meaning potentially there could be children there, and that's justification for uh, yeah, baptizing. Yeah, that's the, that's the that's the loophole that some are trying yeah. to to get into this. But and, and in that same chapter of Acts 16 concerning the Philippian jailer, Paul and uh, verse 32, Paul and Silas spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. So everybody in yeah. that house. Yeah. was old enough to be taught. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, was baptized, he and all his straightway. So all of them in his house were baptized. And when he besought, uh, and when he brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. All that house could be taught. Yeah. It could understand baptism and and could rejoice, believing in God. They believed in God, all in his house believing. So there, there's no infants in right. Lydia's household or the Philippian jailer's household. So if you're using that argument to try and justify maybe infant baptism, I think you're way off. Yeah, all the other prerequisites still have to be met. Kent says household baptism would be all accountable individuals identified with a specific household being baptized uh, who as accountable individuals meet all the qualifications to be baptized. This would exclude babies, unaccountable individuals who had not met those qualifications. During New Testament times, servants would be considered as being a part of the household. Those who were accountable and would meet all the scriptural qualifications were proper subjects to receive New Testament baptism. Exactly right. Can a woman baptize someone? Yes. Can a woman I'm going to say yes. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, 
uh, and and you could, we could invent all kinds of extenuating right. circum, yeah. extenuating hypothetical circumstances. But again, we already said earlier, there's no qualifications placed upon the baptizer or or what who the baptizer is, what his spiritual status is, or what he says when he does the baptizing. So technically, I would say yes, a woman could baptize. But again, in a situation where there are faithful men available to do the baptizing. Precedent-wise, uh, we would say, let's just don't cross that line. Uh, let's let the man do that. Uh, again, there's no. It's just a, it's a discretionary thing, but I think it would be good discretion mm-hmm. to say, mm-hmm. if men are present who are able to do so, let them do so. So we're not blurring that line about women's roles and the submission of women to men. Right. Agree. Totally agree. Uh, Kent says, the question is moot. The New Testament gives no special requirements for one to be qualified to administer a scriptural baptism. A woman might force herself into a situation and usurp authority over a man, insisting that she baptize another individual. This attitude would certainly be sinful on the part of the woman, a violation of 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. However, her attitude would not necessarily violate the desire of a sincere individual obeying from the heart the gospel of Christ and would not render the act of the one being baptized as being invalid. I think that's right. All right. We are down to the last question, Josh. We made it. Should a person always be baptized in front of the local church meeting, or does the example of the Ethiopian eunuch provide a precedent for no one being present when appropriate? I I would say to the, the I would agree with the second part of that question. I think the example of the Ethiopian eunuch would argue that no one else has to be present. We don't know. You know, there's always a question. Were there others in that traveling company of the Ethiopian eunuch? I would think likely, probably, yes. I mean, he's a high government official. It's unlikely that he's traveling solo. We don't know. It doesn't say. The only two people mentioned, though, are are Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, And so, uh, yeah, I I would not argue that. Certainly, it, 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 we, we talked earlier about it doesn't have to be done in a meeting of the church. I don't think it has to be done in front of anybody. Someone, you know, to, you are you are to be baptized. It, 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 in other words, you are the recipient of that act, which implies there's got to be somebody else there to right. do it. Uh, you are being baptized. So if, if, it doesn't say <laughs> baptize yourself. Yeah. Or it, does, it says be baptized. Right. Which implies that it's a submissive act, and another administers that to you. Uh, so it doesn't have to be done in front of anybody else, other than right. I think it, there needs to be a baptizer. Sure. Uh, Kent says it is scriptural to be baptized in an assembly local church. However, we also have New Testament examples of individuals being baptized when the local church was not assembled. The Ethiopian nobleman in Acts eight, the Philippian jailer in Acts sixteen. Kent, thank you. I got two pages of response from Kent. Appreciate him uh, diligently answering these 30-plus questions that we had tonight. And we made it through. I I, I actually was not confident that we could make it through. <laughs> got a minute or two to spare. So thanks to Randy in Colorado for uh, uh, submitting those questions and causing us to think about some. You know, we've talked through the years on the Virgin Bible Study. We've talked about the Lord's Supper a lot. And we've talked about baptism a whole lot. But he was able to come up with some questions that we have not dealt with in all past discussions of these two important things. Again, we don't call them sacraments. That's not biblical terminology. But they are really important things, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Yeah, totally agree. It was a good study. Kyle, any thoughts? No, that was a good study. That was good. All right. We appreciate uh, Randy for submitting questions. And apologies. Looks like there was quite a bit of activity going on in the chat room, but we were so busy trying to cover the questions we already had that we couldn't cover. So we hope that you all, first of all, we hope that you all behave yourself in the chat room, uh, and, and hopefully that some, some valuable discussion took place there. But we absolutely have not been able to monitor that at all. So apologies for that. All right. Anything else, Josh? No, I think we're good. All right. So that's the virtual Bible study for tonight. We thank you for listening. We look forward to another episode of the Virtual Bible Study next week, same time, same place, Lord willing. Until that time, read and study your Bible. Live by it every day. You'll never regret it.
Thanks for listening to the virtual Bible study brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.